0: in first century Judea, respectable men and women put on ornate prayer shawls and special head coverings to walk to their local synagogue to attend services directed by their religious leaders. A typical meeting began with a call to prayer, followed by readings from the scriptures, and then uh, some dignitary might stand to speak, um, espousing on some passage from scripture and citing only rabbinical authorities that were recognized to be able to speak about the meaning of scripture. Afterwards, the attendees would all return to their homes for the Shabbat rest. But down at the River Jordan, something completely different was happening. A disheveled preacher was drawing huge crowds of people to hear him speak. He wore garments made of woven camel's hair with a leather belt and he ate roasted grasshoppers sweetened with wild honey. He gave a call for repentance and many responded to his message and were baptized by him. His followers included social outcasts such as tax collectors, prostitutes, Roman soldiers, the religious leaders, did not like it. They sent a contingent of priests to find out what was going on. Who was this man? What was he doing? And by what authority was he doing it?
1: The Gospel reading is John 1, verses 19 through 27. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jewish leaders sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He fully acknowledged, and did not deny, but fully acknowledged, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He replied, As the prophet Isaiah has said, I am, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Messiah the Messiah? nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This is the gospel of the Lord.
0: I don't know, I still, there's a ringing in the system. I wonder if I should switch to the lapel mic. Or is it getting, is okay now? It's better now, okay. Good. We are in a sermon series on the Gospel of John, uh, which begins with a prologue, which we've been studying these past three weeks, and then it launches into today's Gospel reading. The Interrogation of John the Baptist, which is our text for today. Now our culture today might well ask similar questions to us the church as those church as those leaders back then asked of John the Baptist. Who are we? Why do we preach the word? Confess our sins. Why do we observe the sacraments? And moreover by what authority do we do all of these things? So we can gain insight as to who we are and to why we do the things we do by studying John's answers to those religious leaders. We're gonna draw from our text, and also from the other gospels which tell about John the Baptist, and we're gonna first look at who John said he was not, and thereby we can see what the church is not, and then we'll look to see who John said he was, and thus focus on who we in the church are, and on what it is we do. The initial query to John was, are you the Messiah? Meaning, are you the chosen one, anointed by God's Spirit, who has come to rule the world in righteousness? Depending on his answer, they may have some uh, pertinent follow-up questions about that. Now, this question was on everyone's mind because Messianic hopes were running very high at this time due to the Roman oppression, and also because John the Baptist was so popular. If you look at Luke 3.15, it says, The people were in expectation of Messiah, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John the Baptist, whether he might be the one. But John vehemently denied being the Messiah, as we'll see as we finally begin our text, John 1.19 and 20. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jewish leaders sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He fully acknowledged and did not deny, but fully acknowledged, I am not the Messiah. So John told them, I'm not the Messiah, but my job is to prepare the way for the anointed one. If we look at Mark and his account of this, um, he puts it very clearly. Mark 1, verses 4 through 8. John baptized in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem went out to to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." So John the Baptist indicated that another would come, and he would prove that he was the Messiah by doing far greater things than John had ever ever done. And John told the folks to make ready for this Messiah by repenting. That means by turning from their sin and following God's way. A great example of what this means is found in Luke 3, uh, 10 to 14. It says, And the crowds asked John, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came, desiring to be baptized. And he said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do, Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Those who turned to God were baptized by John to show that they were forgiven. And they had now begun a new life as they awaited the arrival of the Messiah. Well, as it was for John, so it is for the church. We are not the Messiah. If you are looking for a pastor who is a charismatic leader whom you can emulate as an ideal role model, he's not here. (laughs) If you're looking for a group of perfect people who have it all together and can solve all of your problems, then you, my friend, are in the wrong place. We, like John and his followers, are simply sinners pointing the way to Jesus Encouraging everyone to turn to God and to love their neighbors. Well, if John does not claim to be the Messiah, thought the priests, perhaps he believes he is some other prophetic figure, like Elijah, or the one called the prophet. Our next verse in our text, John 1, And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. They said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Well, why would they think he might be Elijah? Well, he resembled Elijah. If you look at Second Kings 1, eight, it describes Elijah as covered in hair with a leather belt. In fact, the Hebrew is he was Lord of hair. <laughs> there was like just hair everywhere I mean, to do that. So, well, furthermore, John told the people prepare for one who was to come. And that seemed to perfectly fit Malachi's prophecy that said Elijah would be sent to prepare people's hearts for Messiah and for the ensuing day of the Lord. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Recall that Elijah did not die, right? He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. So many rabbis interpreted Malachi to imply that Elijah had been whisked away from his generation in order to be planted into some future generation to prepare the way for the end of the world and the inauguration of Messiah's rule in the world to come. But John insisted that he was not the literal embodiment of Elijah. Now, his denial seems at first to be at odds with something Jesus said about him. For after John was imprisoned and then executed by Herod Antipas, Jesus told the disciples that John was Elijah. So let's see how Jesus himself resolves this apparent contradiction. It's in Matthew 17, verses 9 through 13. And as they were out after the transfiguration, the disciples asked Jesus, wait a minute, if you're the Messiah, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, well, it's true that Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But in another sense, I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Jesus confirms that Elijah will come to restore all things at the end of this age in order to hasten the onset of the new age to come. And Elijah's presence at that future time prepares for King Messiah and a new world order. Uh, Revelation 11 talks about this. It's really an in, in, interesting verse. Revelation 11:3, 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. If you do the math, that's three and a half years. Keep that in your brain, three and a half years. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Well, that first witness is clearly Elijah. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and one half years. The second witness alludes to Moses because he inflicted 10 plagues upon Egypt, including turning the Nile to blood. So Jesus says, though, that although John the Baptist is not the literal Elijah who appears at the end of the age, he is still an Elijah, a different kind of Elijah, one who prepares the way for a suffering Messiah. For John, Jesus reveals that John suffered and died as a precursor to Jesus' own suffering and death, which was very imminent. So thus, there are two arrivals of Messiah, and therefore, two arrivals of John the Baptist. And therefore, you can say that either John was or was not Elijah, depending on which Elijah you are talking about. Well, since neither John the Baptist nor the church is Elijah, the Elijah of Revelation. The primary role of us in the church is not to announce that drought and famine or fire and brimstone are coming to bring an end to the world, right? The primary job of the church is to be that other kind of Elijah who suffers along with the Son of Man and who proclaims that Jesus offers love and forgiveness. 1 Peter 2, 21, for you have been called to suffering because the Messiah also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Well, if not Messiah, not Elijah, could John be the prophet of whom Moses spoke? Now Moses, the most revered figure in all of Judaism, told of a coming leader who would be greater than Moses himself, and this person came to be identified as the prophet. He's described in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. He's a kinsman. It is to him you shall listen. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now in John one twenty-one that we just read, John the Baptist emphatically denied being the prophet. And he was absolutely correct in this. Because when Jesus was with his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was identified by God the Father as the prophet. With both Moses and Elijah standing right there as witnesses. Matthew 17, 4 through 6. And Peter said to Jesus, if you wish, I will make three tents here one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He had not even finished speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The father said, Jesus is my son. Now to be the son of God is certainly to be much greater than Moses. And then God said, listen to him. Ergo, Jesus is surely the prophet who is far greater than Moses, of whom all must listen. Hebrews 3, verse 3, just brings this out great. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Verse 5. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to those things that were to be spoken later. But Messiah is faithful over God's house as a son. Well, since neither John nor the church is the prophet, but rather Jesus is, then the church, like John, is to direct the world to Jesus so that all may listen to him. My home church had a sign affixed right here to the top of the pulpit so that only the person standing here could see it. The inscription was from John 12, 21, to request that the Hellenistic Jews made to Philip. The sign said, Sir, we would see Jesus. That sign was there. So, every person who stood behind this pulpit would know why they were there. Sir, we would see Jesus. The leaders were pretty much out of ideas as to who John was, so they cut to the chase. We're going to move in our text to John 1, verses 22 through 24. They said to him, Then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He replied, As the prophet Isaiah has said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now they had been sent by the Pharisees. John's answer to who are you was, I am the voice foretold by Isaiah. He was talking about, are called to worship this morning. Isaiah forty one through five. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. Verse three, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The glory of the Lord departed from Israel, along with the ark of the covenant when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and ransacked the temple in 597 BC. His glory was not revealed again in Israel until 5 BC, one night in Bethlehem. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, an angel of the Lord came upon them And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, your Lord. That's Luke 2, 8 through 11. John's voice revealed the glory of the Lord, Jesus, to the crowds. And similarly, we, the church, today proclaim this same Savior who is the Messiah, born in Bethlehem to the world. Now, we've been considering who is the church by really asking the question, who is John the Baptist? And you might think, well, are you sure you can do that? Well, I've got a pretty sound basis for doing this. Jesus made this very connection as he taught that the church, John the Baptist, and the prophets all have similar missions. Matthew 11, starting in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Down in verse 9. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest personage in the era from the law and the prophets all the way up into the Messiah because all of the others, and that includes Moses and Elijah, could only look forward to Messiah. Where John had the privilege of introducing Messiah personally. But then Jesus said, we're even greater than John because we lived after Messiah. So we can look back, we can proclaim, we can experience Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And that makes us able to testify even more powerfully than did John about Jesus. Well, it was now clear to the priests that John claimed to be none of the prophetic figures that they as religious leaders might acknowledge. Thus, in their opinion, John had no authority to call to repentance or to baptize. They had him cornered. However, there's an old adage of law. I used to do a lot of expert witness work. and There's an old adage, an attorney should never ask a question of a witness unless the attorney already knows what the answer is. The priests broke this rule. John 1, 25. Therefore they asked John, then why are you baptizing if you're neither Messiah or Elijah nor the prophet? My home church purchased some property to expand our facilities but after we would signed the papers and paid our earnest money, the city came in with a better offer. So the seller just ripped up our contract and accepted theirs. We filed suit. Now those were much simpler times and our church had no constitution or bylaws. So the opposing counsel sought to discredit the legality of the congregational meeting wherein we had voted to buy the property our esteemed pastor was on the witness stand when the opposing attorney attacked and by what authority did you call this alleged business meeting our pastor did not flinch he looked him straight in the eye and said by the authority of the New Testament the attorney looked over to the judge and said no more questions your honor <laughs> we won the case the priests like that attorney soon regretted they had asked a question to which they did not know the answer because john gave them a startling reply as to why he baptized matthew 3:11 and 12 i baptize you with water for repentance But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." The priests rightly guessed that they just might be that chaff he was talking about. John the Baptist had been asked by what authority he baptized, and his response was that his authority was in the power and person of the coming Messiah, of whom John the Baptist said he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, John had foreseen things that were going to happen in Acts. Acts 2, 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. As John the Baptist prophesied our worship today, is our response to the power and presence of Jesus and of His Spirit. Now, we really need to note here that the presence of the Holy Spirit, who indwells the church today, creates a sharp distinction between the ritualized good intentions of John's baptism and the full power of baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 19, starting in verse 1. Paul came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. What's what's that? He said, well, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Ah, said Paul. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. On hearing this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Why do you baptize doesn't just mean by what authority do you baptize. It also means for what purpose. And John's purpose was rooted in a Jewish purification rite called mikvah. Mikvah is where a person who repents and wants to live right, righteously enters a body of water, is plunged beneath the surface, and then arises as reborn and purified. Now, if you're right now envisioning Jesus' baptism as jodder over Jesus' head, like in that great painting by Da Vinci, that's not mikvah. <laughs> Maybe this might help. Um, for we Presbyterians here, John Calvin, 1536, from Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, Chapter 15, Section 19. The word baptize means to immerse, and it is clear that the rite of immersion was observed in the ancient church. I know we have a lot of Lutheran background people here. How about Martin Luther, 1520, the Babylonian captivity of the church? I would have those who are baptized completely immersed in the water, as the word says and as the mystery indicates, for this is doubtless the way it was instituted by Christ. Any Methodist here, John Wesley, 1755, notes on the New Testament. The scripture found in Romans 6-4 alludes to the ancient manner of baptizing by immersion. As the word says, we are buried with him by baptism unto death. Therefore, as Christ was raised up from the dead, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And I'll just throw in John 3.23. John also was baptizing at Enon because there was much water there. Interesting, the pool of Siloam, where Jesus told the blind man to go wash, was excavated in 2004. And it was found to be a mikvah pool. Mikvah is still practiced today in Judaism at conversions to Judaism and to purify people before feasts, just as it was in John's day. Uh, John 11:55. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves, to do mikvah. So if we know that John performed mikvah immersion, this helps us to understand his purpose. You see, John was a contemporary of the Essenes. That was a strict Jewish sect had a retreat out at Qumran in the desert. You may remember they were the ones who hid the Dead Sea Scrolls. The writings of the Essenes and the excavations done at Qumran show that one, they believed the end of the age was near, and two, they did mikveh immersion to prepare the way of the Lord. By this they meant to prepare for the coming king, Mashiach ben David, Messiah son of David the preaching of John reveals that he also was to prepare the way of the Lord but with a different expectation than the Essenes we can see this in the last verses of our text John 1 26 and 27 and I've I've got to add verses 29 and 30 just for context so we'll do that verse 26 John answered the priests I baptized with water But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. And then verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. In contrast to the Essenes who were preparing for a political kingdom set up by Mashiach ben David, John performed mikveh to prepare for our redemption, the forgiveness of sins by Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah son of Joseph. He is Jesus, Isaiah's suffering servant, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John baptized because he was preparing the way for the eternal Son of God who would immerse us in his spirit and provide us with more than just a ritual cleansing, but rather with a spiritual cleansing from our deepest sin. That's why John did what he did, and it's why we do what we do. We proclaim and celebrate that redemption. Well, as we conclude, it's important, I think, for us to guard against thinking that once we've discerned that the church points toward Jesus, then our worship is going to always be wonderful, a great spiritual experience, no doubts as to its significance. But to the contrary, we know that even John the Baptist, when he was going through tough times, had his doubts as to whether his ministry had really pointed to the true Messiah or not. Matthew 11:2. 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent word to his, by his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and this is the most important part, and the poor have good news, preach to them. John was reassured by a reminder that Jesus was living out his messianic call. And we too are reassured of God's goodness in Jesus when we hear the testimonies of others around us, when we recall the miracles God has performed in our own lives. This is another reason we gather together to sing hymns, to preach the word, to confess our sins, to observe the sacraments is because we need each other for support as we receive strength and encouragement from the Lord. Maybe you're searching today. You've been asking why the Christians do what we do. Our response is the same as John's was. We don't do these things because we think we have all the answers. Rather, we come together as forgiven sinners to worship God in the Spirit, to call the world to repentance, and, as is the stated purpose of the Gospel of John, to point everyone to life and belief in the true Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. This is who we are, and this is what we do.